0: morning. I hope all of you guys are doing well. Uh, and Brad, mine's, thank you guys for that. So as Doug read, he read uh, from John chapter 4, and that's where we're going to be this morning. But before we begin our journey to the well, I would like to give you all a huge thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for the opportunity that you have given me to serve such a loving and encouraging congregation. It has really been a privilege and an honor to be a part of you guys. Throughout this summer, your love and support has been endless. And it is truly mind-blowing to think that this summer is really going to end. But without a doubt in my mind, it has been one of my most memorable summers. And you guys are truly one of the most welcoming, hospitable, and hard-working congregations I have everywhere. I'm I'm most certain that my mom is appreciative of all the free meals that I receive. You guys have been keeping her meatball nice and healthy. <laughs> and as a college student, food is far more valuable than anything else in this world. But I'm even more grateful for the great relationships and the friendships that I've been able to build. And my prayer is that they don't end here. But apart from the meals and apart from the great company, what is most important and what kindles my desire to serve to the best of my ability is the unity that I have experienced within this congregation. To see a church so tightly knitted by God's love is extremely motivating to me as a future minister. Of course, ministry has its struggles, But a congregation like this is what enlightens me to pursue such a profession. God's word is especially evident here at Taylor Street Church of Christ. (laughs) Grant, Doug, you are two of the goofiest guys I've ever met. And Jamie and Jennifer, you guys are in my daily prayers. But I've told you guys before that you guys should really consider starting your own TV series, or even a talk show. Name it, The and Doug Show, Boyd Boy Christmas, and Harry Dunn make a comeback. I really hope you guys get that reference. So these two people are, are the ones who keep us all entertained in the office. They have a way of making a fun work environment. I think Alexis, Angie, and Bob, you guys can all attest to that. But don't worry, elders. And don't worry, church, we didn't always just sit around and listen to these two humans entertain us. Sometimes we took the initiative to work. Sometimes. I'm really glad I only have a week left because I'm probably going to get fired after this. But on a serious note, you two have truly become two of my greatest role models. And I can't thank you guys enough for the guidance you both have provided for me. You guys have helped me mature spiritually and definitely administratively. And to see the way you guys love your families is something that has really impacted me. And i look up to you both. You know, I'd say my progression from inmate to intern has been an exceptional one. What did you feel Lance? Like? Some of you are asking yourselves, inmate? What are you talking about? To answer your question, no, I wasn't really an inmate before this internship, but I might be after it. Now you all know where Lance really goes to recruit his interns. <laughs> you guys go see him after the service so he can explain that to you. But really, I am deeply moved by the love you all have shown me. And I will miss all of you, so thank you. This morning, I want to take us on a journey. A journey to a, fe- to a well found on Mount Jersey. The very same love, as I have experienced here, is given to a Samaritan woman. 2,000 years ago, I probably would have been stoned for heresy. What do you mean love for a Samaritan woman? You see, she was a woman who was seemingly despised for her ethnicity and her gender. And we'll find later in the story, or as those who are familiar with the story already know, that she was entangled in deep sin. So this is a woman who could not, by any standard, be compared to the Jennifer from homecoming queen of 1980. To say the least, the Samaritan woman did not have much going for her. And before we travel too far up Mount Garrison, let's backtrack to John chapter 3, where we encounter a seemingly established leader. His name is Nicodemus, and the text describes him as a religious leader. A man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And with those few descriptions given to us, we can already perceive that he has a high-ranking social status. First, he is a male. Second, he is a Pharisee. The elite religious party who redefined Judaism after the destruction of the temple. And third, he is possibly a member of the Sanhedrin. John calls him a ruler of the Jews. And the way John is describing him He is no force to be reckoned with. So discussion between him and Jesus begins. Nicodemus comes to him at night, and that's going to play a crucial role in his character. And Jesus presents him with this mind-boggling idea. Truly, truly, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Long story short, Nicodemus utterly misunderstands Jesus and actually considers the idea of re-entering your mother's womb. What? Okay, so stick with me here. This is where it might get a little confusing, but it's extremely interesting. The Greek word used for born again is anaphen. Anaphen can be translated in two different ways, as it is here, born again, and from above. This is extremely clever on the part of the author of John. He deliberately leaves the term ambiguous to make his point. The way Nicodemus interpreted the word was in its literal sense, born again. Jesus actually meant it in in its figurative sense, from above. Jesus says, unless you are born of water and spirit from above, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus was talking about a transformation. A transformation in your orientation. Not re-entering your mother's womb. Mothers feel enough pain pushing you out. I can assure you that they really don't want you crawling back in. So you see how ridiculous that is? And so this entire passage with Nicodemus is about um, tuning our frequency to the frequency on which God speaks. It's a complete transformation. As one scholar would put it, it is turning your orientation toward God so you can understand the words. But Nicodemus never does. All he hears and understands is static. Remember him coming to Jesus by night? At this point in his life, he is a man who belongs to the darkness, and he is not able to come to the light, the light of understanding. So here's a question. How can a man, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the teacher of Israel, how can he not comprehend Jesus' words? This man was not a dull man, yet God speaks over his head. Well, if you read the story, you will find that he was distracted by his social ranking and status, and that debilitated his comprehension. And so we get the richest irony found all over the Gospel of John. Jesus is rejected by those we would expect to accept him, and accepted by those we would expect to reject him. Did you catch that? He is rejected by those we would expect to accept him, and accepted by those we would expect to reject him. And that brings us to the foot of Mount Gerizim. We can now begin our trek up to meet Nicodemus' polar opposite, a Samaritan woman. Who was this woman approaching Let's first talk about the status of a woman in, compar- in comparison to a man's in ancient times. For starters, Jewish men were advised against public conversation with a woman. It was shameful to be seen with a woman, and here's why. Now, this might make you a little uncomfortable, but I simply state this to express to you the gravity of the situation. Women were considered to be ritually unclean because they menstruate. As a matter of fact, Jews begin to use the term menstruant, which is not even a word. It's the made-up noun form of menstruate, but they use it as a vulgar slur against women. The prophet Amos, in chapter 4, verse 1, he refers to Samaritan women as cows. They were viewed as literally worthless, ritually unclean. And if any man came into contact with such a woman, he was considered unclean and shameful. Who was this woman approaching the world? Let's change our focus to her ethnicity. She was a Samaritan. And simply, Samaritans and Jews held a long history of enmity and hostility for one another. There was an ethnic barrier created between them. We get a slight glimpse. At one of the many things that separated these two, and we get this in the dialogue between the woman and Jesus, and according to the passage, there was an age-old dispute about worship, and this dispute caused major separation. The question was whether one was to worship in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. Samaritans claimed Mount Gerizim, and the Jews, they claimed Jerusalem. Well, we will see later how Jesus ends that dispute, but for now, let's continue to talk about the Samaritans. In John 8, verse 48, Jesus gets accused of being a Samaritan, and then the Jews proceed to equivocate Samaritans with a demon. So that should give you a glimpse at the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. They were rivals, and if I'm correct, it's equivalent to the rivalry between Hobbes and Clovis or for us Capitanians who are here this morning, Capitanic Arizona. But magnify that by ten. All that to say that her title alone, Samaritan Woman, placed her extremely low on the societal totem pole. Because of her ethnicity and her gender, the Samaritan Woman was socially dejected. She's basically a nobody. But, She is a nobody, unlike Nicodemus, who understands Jesus' words and believes wholeheartedly that he is the So let's start climbing this mountain. It was another normal, ordinary day for the Samaritan woman as she began her hike up to draw water from the well. The text says that it was the sixth hour of the day. That would be noon, so it's the hottest part of the day. Many scholars believe that she chose this time because there would be no one else, in their right mind at least, going at this time. This gives voice to the fact that she was considered an outcast, a reject. She did not want to be in contact with anybody. According to Genesis, women typically went to draw water in the evening. Excuse me. <laughs> um, and the main reason being, it's not hot. Would you rather hike in 100 degree weather or in 80 degree weather? Well, here in Hogs, we don't have much of a choice. But then again, there's not a lot of hiking around here either. And that makes me really miss the mountains. But she goes in the middle of the day. And the, and the heat is being down on her. She is tired of the dust and the sand in her face and the snow is sweat. She is repulsed by the bitter grit in her dry mouth. At least her water jar might have been keeping her head full with some shade. But even empty, it was probably heavy and wearing on her neck. Imagine how much more stress her neck would have had to bear on the way back down when her water jar was actually full. But little did she know who was waiting for her at the well. And little did she know, her water jar would no longer be a necessity. So she finally talks the hill. She releases a huge sigh of relief, and to her surprise, a man is sitting at the well alone. All of us in here know exactly who is sitting at the well, but she doesn't have a clue. And the man commands her to give him a drink, for that man was weary and tired from his journey. And conversation between the two begins. I love what Alice and Mackenzie has to say about this. She says, to engage in conversation with Jesus is to put our present faith at risk. That absolutely comes true in this story. Unknowingly, the Samaritan woman places her present faith but at risk, but Jesus is there to reassure her. And so the woman immediately recognizes that this man is a Jew. And all these political issues surface. Beginning with her ethnic slur, her very first words to him in response to his command, she asks, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Social and ethnic barriers have long tainted our perception of humanity, or at least the way God intended humanity to be. Discrimination, segregation, it has led to the despise of one too many communities. Unfortunately, at times, many of us in here ostracize those around us unconsciously. And I'm certain this is not unfamiliar ground for the majority of us in here we have almost likely studied it, or we have almost likely heard it preached, that ethnic and societal barriers are woven into this story. So we won't spend too much time here. But it is just so unfortunate that these man-made barriers, man-made barriers, tear communities apart. And we see it with the Jews and the Samaritans, and we see it here with the Samaritan woman and Jews. But here's the point of it. Jesus is first identified by her as a Jew. And I love Jesus' response to her after she presents her question. Jesus says, woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for a drink. He flips the table on her. He says, I would have given you living water. As if to say, if you knew who I was, you would know that what I have to offer is much greater than the water you would put to draw. At first it seems that she understands this living water to be running water. And she questions his strategy to get that living water. She says, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where did you get that living water? And she sarcastically questions his social status. She says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? You see, the irony is that he actually is greater than Jacob, and she will come to terms with that later in the story. So with Jesus' next word to her, as we are trekking up Mount Gerizim, we arrive at a viewpoint. Jesus looks at her and says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever, and notice that he extends his offer to all people, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, for obvious reasons, that offer seems extremely appealing to her. She might be thinking, that would be the day when I don't have to make the trek up Mount Gerizim. And so she says, Sir, give me this water. We have to understand something. In ancient times, it was not proper, proper for a woman to accept a gift from someone without the presence of her husband. So Jesus, knowing her history, requests that she go and get her husband. Remember the point about conversation being risky with Jesus. Well, he calls her out. And as we read, the woman ends up having five husbands prior to the man who she is living with now, and he's not even her husband. So you're telling me that she's not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman, and not only a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman who is caught in deep sin. If you thought it couldn't get worse for her, it just did. So knowing that Jesus was fairly accurate about her history, she identifies him as a prophet. First, he was a Jew, and now he is a prophet. There seems to be a progression in her identification of him. And this is important, because as a prophet, the Samaritan woman is now able to resurface that angel dispute we talked about earlier. I did say he settled that dispute, right? Well, here's how. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He tells her, You have completely misunderstood the point of worship. The topography, the topography is trifling. True worship comes from within you." And she basically ignores his clever response over the dispute, and she says, yeah, well, I know that Messiah is coming. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. Now this should be extremely comical to us who are spectating the story from outside. Jesus, the Messiah, who she claimed was going to tell her all things, is standing right in front of her, and she does not see it. And so we arrive at the top of the mountain this morning. The climax of the story that is so brilliantly set up, in response to her somewhat cheeky remark, Jesus looks at her and claims his divinity. He says, I who speak to you am he. He claims that he is the Son of God, the Messiah whom she awaited. And at that moment, Jesus was completely transparent with her. And this progression of identity from a Jew to a prophet and now to Messiah is complete. You see, and we can end the journey here. Some of you are probably like, please end the journey. But we're at the top of this mountain, and the message would be, Jesus is truly Son of God. And that is far and away a great message and affirmation. But the story doesn't end there. Because just then, his disciples come rushing up the mountain. And they are shocked at what they see. Jesus is talking to a woman. But notice, none of them question him. And that might have been the smartest thing we see the disciples do throughout the entire gospel of John. Time and time again, Jesus has moments with them that deserve a hand to the but they are smart in this moment. They don't question him. Because as was said earlier, to engage in conversation with Jesus is to put our present faith at risk. It's risky business questioning Jesus or even conversing with him. And that is why at times, Jesus leads us where we are. Just like he met the Samaritan woman where she was. At the well. In the common place of her life. In the mundaneness of her life. I love that concept. Jesus will meet us where we are, and will offer to us the blessing of living life. Sometimes we are too fearful to have an encounter with Jesus. For that same reason, we are scared of having our faith questioned. We fear conversation with him, but sometimes our faith needs exactly that, to be put at risk that it may become unshakable. What the Samaritan woman does next is worth remembering. And this is my favorite part of the story. So if you haven't listened to any of the earlier part of the sermon, please listen now. The disciples are standing around them. Jesus has just claimed his Messiahship to this woman. And she forgets about the very thing she trekked up the mountain for. Get this. She drops her pot. Meditate on that for a while. And I love ancient authors, such as the author of John. And I tell you the truth, they do not simply add in random details to the story. Every detail counts. And when I first read the story, I thought to myself, okay, she dropped her water pot. Who cares, John? But really listen to what seems a stale and trivial detail of the story, because that detail, that small detail, becomes one of the greatest moments in the story. She left her water. Pot. Remind me what she went up to the well for? Remind me what she was carrying and why? Remind me what that must have been burdening her and making her trick that much more challenging. It was her water pot, and she dropped it. She drops it as a way of accepting Jesus' offer, his offer of the living water, eternal life, that if she drank from the water he offers, an everlasting spring would well up in her and she would no longer thirst. She no longer found the need to keep her water jar and she leaves it and goes away to the city to tell her people what she had experienced. What once was a burden to her Jesus replaces with a blessing. The blessing of the living water. And at that moment, the trajectory of her choice, her orientation, must have been completely shifted around. And her she understanding of Christ the Messiah, she waited, was made for sleep. You see, her water pot symbolized a physical necessity, something she depended on for her, her survival. Okay. Answer me with a nod. We all need water to survive, right? And yet, with absolute trust, she was willing to leave it behind for that moment. In replacement of the living water, she no longer needed a jar to hold her water, for the spring of water was welling up in her. In a figurative sense, she became the water jar, filled with an everlasting spring. That speaks significantly about the kind of faith his children must hold fast to. We encounter a woman who who has most likely been rejected by her community, a woman who is stuck in sin, a woman who is shamed, a woman who has been socially severed. But she understands that it is him and him only that can truly give her eternal life. You see, his love reaches even to the deepest Most dirtiest, most defiled places of this earth. I just can't imagine how beautiful this day was for her. For so long she was deemed an outcast, ritually unclean, a menstruant, a Samaritan menstruant, and the list goes on forever. But that does not phase Jesus, a Jewish man. Her so called uncleanliness was transcended by the cleanliness of. And the same goes for us, his children. We are made clean by him. You see, I firmly believe that what he saw in her was not a social outcast, was not a ritually unclean Samaritan woman, but a beautiful woman, a life full of love. What society marks as invaluable or unworthy, Jesus sees as diamonds, people who are worthy of his love. And he, without any shame, approaches her and gives her this living water. And on one of the most ordinary days of her life, trekking up to Jacob's well to draw her water, she has this life-altering encounter with Jesus. And her orientation is changed. She gets it. The woman who is not supposed to understand anything, she understands God's words through Jesus. She changes her frequency to the same frequency that God speaks. And the static of her life is gone. And not only in her life, you see, this is the good part, but also in the lives of her entire village, those who defiled her. And they came to believe, not on her word alone, but through an encounter they themselves had with the Savior of the world. A woman who initially questioned Jesus' work comes to fully believe in him, and leads others to the living water. Now that is something. You see, God's love reaches even to the deepest, dirtiest, most defiled places of this earth. And our challenge is imitating that same kind of love. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that in the mundaneness of your life, there He is. But we have to be attentive to his word. You see, just as necessary as it was for Jesus to be in Samaria by the well, it was just as necessary for her to trek up Mount Gerith. The extraordinary stitched between the ordinary. All you who are thirsty, come and receive the living water. Seek out the extraordinary, stitch between the ordinary, stitch between the mundaneness of your life, and you will find Jesus Christ. And as it was for the Samaritan woman, that will be enough to sustain you. My question for you this morning is, do you want the living water? Are you willing to leave your jar behind? So all you who thirst, as we stand and sing, come and receive the living water that our Savior is offering us this